Hey everybody, it's Mike Birbiglia. Today's sponsor is Sam Adams. It's my hometown beer and they're doing a really positive thing right now. There's so many industries devastated by COVID-19, but perhaps none other as severely as the restaurant industry. So Sam Adams, along with the Greg Hill Foundation, have created the Restaurant Strong Fund to support restaurant workers. Sam Adams has launched this fund, but they need your help. You can support the effort by donating to the Restaurant Strong Fund at samueladams.com. And now the show. Is everybody else less of a pain in the ass than us? I no, think, I, think uh, we're, I think I'm the pain in the ass because I've never done it before and I'm not a professional. Hey everybody, this is Working It Out. Uh, this is a completely unique episode today uh, with a, a wife and husband lyrical duo from my favorite band, The National, Matt Berninger and Corinne Besser, as well as my wife, Jen, uh, who co-wrote our book, The New One, with me. She's a poet. Corinne is a poet. The, this conversation actually started at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles last fall when these guys came to my show and we thought we should have a, a, a more complete conversation. And that's what this is. So we have this rare thing in common with you guys, which is that we're both married couples who collaborate on writing. And, and that's a complex thing because collaboration is, is hard to begin with. You're sort of opening up your soul to somebody and saying, like, here's what mm -hmm. I got. And they're, they're like, here's what I got. And it's not finished or done or, or, you know. And so when you do that with the person you're in love with, I feel like it's, uh, you know, there's more baked into it inherently. That is what, uh, really one of our biggest sort of debates is, is how much we should share with each other like too soon. And, and, and um, it, it, it is tricky, especially when it's so subjective and in stuff like poetry and comedy and music and songs. It's, it's, in, in some ways, it's easier because someone else's blurry thoughts can sometimes commingle with your blurry thoughts because it's sort of a blurry format. But you get really attached to your version of the blurry idea. Sure. And then someone else comes in and hears something different. But like writing a love song um, is is kind of tricky. But, but we, we've managed to do it. But we do get in really heated emotional uh, sure, yeah. Debates over. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking when we were going to talk, knowing we were going to talk about this, I had this thought um, yesterday. I was like, wow, yeah, Matt and I really, we fight about it. And we have conversations like that conversation we, we had with you that night. But we've never really sat and talked about, like, so what are we doing? Am I bringing the, the verses and you're doing that? Like, we very rarely do that. And I think... I think Some we're the same. We're like, the same, by the way. There's no, there's actually not a clear delineation. We never sat down and we're no. like, let's write this book together. It was like Mike was writing a book and then I kept like interrupting it, I think, with like, actually, that's not what happened. That's, what, that's how I see what happened is this. And so he would put my thoughts also in it to sort of balance it out. And, but it was not an intention. Mm hmm. Yeah, a lot of it with us was like, was, was I was saying, hey, do you remember Una's like first milestones? And I remember them as like her first crawling was this and her first steps were this. And Jen would be like, here's a poem called An Infant Reaches. And I'd be like, um, I'm going to just read that. It definitely got heated on our end too. 
in certain moments. <laughs> oh. I feel like, well, there was like, I remember there was that one chapter where you're like, like Jen looked at me like I was doing like this and that. And then I was like, I didn't look at you that way. I was looking at you like this. And I was like, you got to put that in. <laughs> like that I think that I was looking at you like this. If you think you're looking at me like that. And I think at a certain point, there's like some language that you developed, which was like, so what happened is either A, this happened, which is like what Mike's story is, or B, this happened, which it was like my version of it, or it's like C, some other version that's a combination of those two or not those things at all, or, you know, so like we had to sort of come up with like a, a rhythm for that discussion. Yeah, like like that's one of the things about collaborating with someone who you're married to is you realize that the two sides of the story of literally a, an event that both of you are witnessing is worlds apart. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I think we're all. I mean, I'm often emotionally the combination of everything that makes up our identity and our reaction and our emotions, uh, emotional reaction to anything is so entirely different. Everybody's internal soup is so different. And just because you get married doesn't mean you find somebody with the same soup, you know, at all. <laughs> and so when, when, when such a, Finally. you know, I mean, it might be, this, you know, similar stock, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, so, so when, when, a, you know, when a, such a major change happens for anybody um, alone, their soup changes and, 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 and every, their mind, their identity changes changes and so that you, you both have to become not only does a new person enter your life but you instantly become a different person and they become a different person and and suddenly you and your wife are both suddenly entirely new people and you have to get to know each other and this this third person all at the same time and it's you know and then and without any sleep you know yeah, yeah. i mean that's and that's one of the things we've even talked about before is like the idea of like getting Either having a wedding, we, we got married at City Hall, so we didn't like have a wedding. So did we? Other than friends? Oh, really? Of course. <laughs> yeah, right down by the Brooklyn Bridge, and then we walked over the Brooklyn Bridge. It's we don't a, know so, for sure what the date of our wedding was. Yeah, we've right. had, we've had dis, we've had a dispute over it so much that I don't even remember which is my side or your right. side anymore. I don't even know which, which day I'm on. fighting Crin, what's for. Our, what's our anniversary, Crin? Right now, we, what's our we anniversary? Say, yeah, when I'm asking my wife. <laughs> I answer? think it's July twentieth, two thousand seven, which That's I only correct. remember because seven twenty. Well, I'm pretty but, sure you're correct. Well, yes, well, I think so. you're right. Yeah, we're early July. Early July. <laughs> Do people pick apart what your actual marriage is because you write so many love songs together? I've never experienced that. When he's writing these songs, and then sometimes I come in and out, um, so often the really tense lines and the lines about sort of battle lines being drawn, or I sort of usually assume he's writing about the process of writing and collaborating with the band, but... Then I find out, oh, no, that was actually about a fight we were having. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to sort of like, I don't understand what the records are about either. (laughs) I don't either. I I mean, Prin and I have found that, like, there are times where we need to to work on our own things um, and, and not share 
are yeah. what we're working on with each other. And it's not because because we're 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 hiding something. It's just it's, it's good to have those. It's good to have a diary. It's good to have your own you know place where it's it's. Um, and so we we both you have, have to that. Just too. have the the time with it where it's really just you as the sounding board. I mm-hmm. think I think yeah. that's really important. Also, I think. Sometimes I like to feel, I know I'm always kidding myself, but sometimes I like to feel that I have stayed so much away that my opinion then holds great weight. (laughs) 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 It never really works like that. That that sounds familiar. You know, like the value. And and I also like to do the thing of the like, here's just my gut reaction, which is always kind of... She does weight... And she did, you know, if there's something she oh, no, wants me to change, this. she will, she'll wait and find a way that there's no way I cannot, like, she'll, I, I'm trying to think of an example. But I probably learned this technique Where she'll just you. say, I don't know, you know, that, that, that you just, the way you're saying that line makes me just picture you in like, in like beige shorts, you know, <laughs> and like something like that. And just, it's got that, and I'm like, okay, you know, it, it's like. I'm like, yeah, no, and like that, she 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 appeals to my uh, fragile, just just incredibly fragile ego ego to um, persuade me, and and it works, and and she's but she's usually right, you know. So my only defense is that I have I I am trying to reform. I'm trying to reform, but it is true that I have done that in the past. Well, we spent a lot of time away from each other writing. And like when Mike, when there was touring, Mike would be touring something for months, maybe before I would see it, especially if it was about us. And I would want to give him that space because I feel like early in our relationship, I kind of learned to not get too emotionally involved with what goes on on stage. And so I remember like the the first thing I got upset about that you ever did on stage about us was when we were dating and you and you came back from a tour, like a show with like a hickey on your neck. I don't recall that. <laughs> uh, this is actually well. This is actually well. I'm joking. It's well documented and it's in my girlfriend's boyfriend's it's, it's, show. It's in my girlfriend's boyfriend. But this was like a tumultuous time in our relationship. It's our first year dating. We were both kind of having a hard time with each other. But um, then he was doing like the story on stage. And I was like, really hated it. I just like hated it. And Mm. now, like, by the time it was done, when he like finished it, it's been it's like one of my favorite stories he's ever told on stage. I just laugh my Mm -hmm. ass off at. I think it's so funny. But it, it, I mean, I learned a lot from just sort of giving things space and not taking things so seriously, and just like sort of seeing where it winds up, and then from that point, kind of suggest certain things. Softly. Yeah. And then for me, like, it took me two years probably of being married before I shared a lot of work with him. And then, Mm -hmm. like, we still kind of keep things from each other until we're ready to sort of have the discussion. So Mm -hmm. when you share work, though, by that, do you sort of mean, like, okay, I'm ready to share this now because now I'm ready to hear what your brain will do with it? I think it's that. And I think it's, like, you want you know, when you're early in something, you don't want to hear anything that's going to stop you from where you want to go with it. And I don't want to yeah, stop him. Yeah, or you. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want to stop him from where he wants to go with something. And I don't want to be yeah. stopped either. So well, it's I think, kind of mutual. Yeah. I don't think that I have anything to offer in the poetry realm. I disagree. Mm-hmm. It's what? funny because I hear you in it. It's, uh, something I read about 
the play or the book, maybe it was Ira Glass said this, the great trick you guys pull off is that she delivers the laughs and you deliver the feeling. And I just think for the atmosphere you're evoking of this moment of like everybody's bodies blending together in new parenthood or marriage, it's really cool the ways the the ping pong ball bounces around Uh in all different directions. And I feel that in Little Astronaut as much as in, in the new one, obviously, the book. Thanks. I mean, I well, I think one of the challenging things about autobiographical work is that you're completely exposing yourself, your marriage, your family, all this stuff. And when people criticize it, and I have a really thin skin because people say nice things too, but when they criticize it, like it hurts personally. Right. Well, it, it, with regard to like comedy and poetry and song and, and even in you know a painting or anything, if if an artist isn't actually showing the murky, kind of unpolished, scary stuff inside their minds and soul, and then I just don't believe anything they're doing. And yeah. um, so, yeah. so I, I don't think you, it's hard to qualify as an artist unless you're sharing truthful, personal, genuine things. Otherwise, I think you're more of a a packager or a craftsman of thoughts, sure, you know, sure. or something, which is also a, you know, that's a, that's your, you know, you write pop songs and they're, they're designed to do a thing, but pop songs aren't necessarily intended to expose any truths. They're supposed to entertain, but, and, and so is some comedy, obviously, right? However, yeah. um, the, always the artists and the singers and songwriters and comedians and poets that, Corinne and I like are only the ones that you were like, oh, they're really telling us the truth. And then, but that's also from the beginning of our relationship, that's the only kind of writing Corinne could even tolerate. So (laughs) anytime she smelled bullshit in my writing, that's the first thing she'd go after. So I was forced to, you know, reveal more of myself to Corinne than I think maybe either of us were ready for early because I knew from an artistic perspective, yeah. she wouldn't, she wouldn't ha- tolerate anything less. You know, we had the same and exact. I, and I dynamic. wanted to impress her almost more as an artist than I wanted to preserve the peace in our relationship. And I think that's why it's been healthy for us. You know, I guess, but it hasn't always been healthy. To be perfect, right. you know. Yeah, but I see that's interesting because I would not. I would say that that person is sort of. A projection of what yeah. you wanted, right? You know, which is the other thing that happens when you're and I got in a relationship with someone who's writing while you're writing yeah. is they're also like your witness, and so you're forming this perfect editor. But um, I mean, I don't know anyone else who I could. Sh- I don't share anything I write with anyone else, uh, really. I mean, and I, I've written a lot of things just without Corinne. Um, uh, and, and I do share them and like when I'm in the studio and sometimes people have comments I mean Booker T. Jones was the first person who, who uh, kind of had the confidence other than Corinne to sort of to, to like ask me about certain lines and what they meant sure. it was great it was really wonderful but almost very rarely like does anybody in the national ever I think because in the past I just would explode um because because what we talk about, it's also personal. But but Corinne is the only person who could sort of because uh, most of it was about her, and I I felt like I I it was my responsibility to to let her 
see what I was feeling in these songs and if it was okay to say, right? Maybe a little bit? I'm sure that the fact that like my fingerprints were all over various parts and various iterations of things just makes it safer and easier. Yeah. Yeah. But it also means that then I have no idea what the finished songs are. Well, yeah, and, and and I would say none of our none of anything we I've done or anything you've done or, is ever about one thing. You know, it's like it's there are. I mean, even the, there's a song where called Corinne at the liquor store. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever gone to the liquor store for me. Corinne does not spin up. Like, that was my I, number I have one no, question. I have literally no image of Corinne in any liquor store, but it's, I, I love that lick, uh, that, that was a great lyric in a great title, which we both love because it sounded like a great John, John Cheever title. But yeah, but, yeah. yeah people think Corinne hangs out in liquor stores a lot, and that's more me. Corinne at the liquor store, I can't wait to see you. I'm walking around like I was the one who found dead John Cheever. I was listening to that song today, and my my joke about that song was um was like, do, Corinne, do, do people ever go? Wait, are you Corinne from Corinne at the liquor store? <laughs> 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 like that's your claim to fame? <laughs> like you're just always at the liquor yeah. store? <laughs> no, I know. Well, the, I I did write a song about, I mean, mostly about Corinne a long time ago when we were early in our relationship called Karen in. People, you know, have have assumed Corinne's name is pronounced Karen, but I was trying to protect kind of, you know, it was the weakest, it was the weakest disguise to protect her innocence. But now everybody calls her Karen, and it's now you say her name. And uh, so another part of calling, naming that song Corinne at the Liquor Store and, and making it the chorus, it was just so people knew what, how to pronounce her name. And it still hasn't worked. Um, we but have, anyway, we, yeah, we have a really similar yeah. dynamic. Like early in our relationship, I would describe myself as writing. Like my first album was Two Drink Mike, and it was sort of comedy mm-hmm. pop songs, which is to use your phrase. Like, and Jen saw me workshopping an early version of Sleepwalk with me, which was much more personal. But I was, it was at UCB. It was sort of just like twenty five people in the crowd kind of thing, and it was very raw. And she sort of said like. Well, that's what you should be doing. Like, that's where it's mm-hmm. at. Yeah, I would say some of the most exciting comedy shows I've ever seen is Mike performing like early, early versions of Sleepwalk with me to like 25 people or to like a basement in Alaska, mm-hmm. you know, just like really, really like oh, tiny yeah. crowds and just like wild shows. I'm like, I literally didn't know what he was going to say next. And I don't know. I, I just was like, that's it. Like, that's so good. I think it's no coincidence that the first record that um, anybody really started paying attention to of of the Nationals was Boxer, and that was the first one where I think I was really, really trying to impress Corinne and 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 and, and getting her to 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 help. And and um, you have a few. You even that was the first record that you even have a few lines on, right? I think, and and so and that was kind of early in our relationship, and and and. So in Corinne's sort of, um, not only me wanting to impress this woman I was in love with, but also I was absorbing, trying to absorb as much as what what she was in love with, writing-wise, and her favorite writers, and like like Berryman, and her favorite poets, and and, uh, Didion, and, and all these people. And so I... I I was going to be a very different kind of writer. I mean, I loved. I mean, I was obsessed with Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits and Nick Cave, and I, and those were st- were still my models. But 
Corinne introduced me to a to a kind of even different world of language and writers that I probably would not have uh, gone and found in a bookshop on my own. I just I just absorbed it all from from her collection, and I think you absorb shit from me maybe a little bit. Here and there. <laughs> Did you absorb shit? Uh, yeah. Corinne, that's your line. That's your line. <laughs> I've, I've often said I don't I don't read a lot of books, but I, I read my wife's bookshelf. And that's, I've, that's I've literally just stolen like, like there's a the song Light Years off of the Nationals last yeah. album. Yeah. I've oh never re- I've never read the, the novel Light Years, but I, I, I just love the title. Light years. Light years away from you. Did you, when you introduced Corinne into the writing credit, was that an awkward thing? It was interesting. It was like a slow thing. I mean, maybe you can, maybe do you want to talk about this? I mean, it was. Yeah, no, I think that um, Matt liked to sometimes make it funny and let me know that like, okay. But the guy, Aaron and Bryce were always bringing people in and Mm. I always felt like there was so much music that the more writing that could happen was was always kind of a good thing but that obviously I was like just throwing things at a pot that Matt was then cooking and 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 finishing because he was still building a kind of feeling of kind of how he wanted to do the thing you know and I I felt like Early, early on, I always felt like we were sort of collaborating on a on a character. Mm-hmm. Also, I'll say in the very beginning. I mean, there and I kind of maybe perpetuated some of these things, but like, Crin had two nicknames. Um, one was obviously Yoko, and it was, it was uh, <laughs> and, and that was sort of, and I think I I was the one who, who kept calling her Yoko, just to oh sort of gosh. like, sort of to com- comically diffuse. But which was such a giant, like, self-compliment, you know? <laughs> 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 so- <laughs> I was essentially trying to just make, compare myself to John Lennon, obviously. <laughs> I, yeah, oh, I, I often refer to, to Corinne as Michelle Obama to around the house. Um, but no, but another uh, good self but, no, but, but then the other, the other was, and I think this was from the band um, was was the Oracle, and and uh, oh, and I yeah. think everybody in the band recognized that I suddenly was be- was was becoming a better writer. Um, mm. and that Corinne was a really good influence on me and just on the band. I think everybody, honestly, I think everybody kind of wanted to impress Corinne as well. She was she was fancy. She was cool. She was from the New Yorker. <laughs> she was older yeah, yeah. Than, than, you know, and she's, and she was always right. And, and also yeah. the band loved to have someone who could stand up to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, that that is that's, true. That's I think. true. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. There's Corinne. a lot of that with us. There's a lot of that with us yeah. because my brother Joe writes with me too, and like, and so there's like sometimes Joe will try yeah. to back channel through Jen to get me to do something, mm-hmm. and it is all very murky. <laughs> it's all very murky. It, it, there was a lot yeah. more of that in the beginning, like the first few years. And then that that's tapered off now. I don't think he try, he doesn't try to talk, do that anymore. Everyone, I, don't, I don't think it was working. <laughs> everyone knows that Jen can get Mike to do anything. <laughs> Maybe. 
<laughs> I know. Yeah. I feel my days, my days of of, of deep persuasion yeah. might be waning. Well, Corinne's essential gift is like is bullshit detector, and, <laughs> and even when we were, you know, Tom, my brother, and I were were starting to dig in to try to make a, a tour documentary, which turned into Mistaken for Strangers. The first, the the first attempts of that were just us being jackasses and just goofing around. <laughs> and, you know, it was like Flight of the Concords or something I was trying to do. And, and Corinne was the, when she saw a lot of that stuff we were putting together, she said, um, she said, that stuff's funny, but it's, it's just cute. It's not. And then there were some things of us captured of us fighting and Tom, Tom filmed himself crying and drunk on the bus. And, and, and that's what she saw that. And she's like, I know that's painful, but that's, the most interesting stuff. You need to dig into that. So she's always been the one to like to change to to, to recalibrate so, uh, her collaborators' compass to go more to the center of the onion, to the real issue, to the real emotion, the real content. And so I love that she's movie. She's been that for me I, from the beginning. Yeah, I really love that movie. And uh, is that the first time we met these? We guys? met. That's when we met you guys at the premiere of yeah. The yeah, you for came Strangers to the premiere at the, sun, at the yeah. former Sunshine Theater in we, New York. Yeah, we came up to you guys and we were like. You're a huge fan. That's fans. right. That no, was that amazing. was a really yeah. Mike meeting you two. I remember. I feel like, yeah, meeting you two at that was such a nice moment in that whole experience. That's when we felt like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it legitimized it for us. So we were like, oh, well, Mike Brigley uh, liked it, and so we just knew. I mean, just because we knew that it was kind of. Odd tone and 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 um yeah. We're holding so, we're holding back our laughter here because yeah, we're, yeah, like, we're holding we're back like, our laughter. That it's night absurd. was like such a big deal for us. <laughs> it was like a dream come true. <laughs> So the podcast is called Working It Out, and today I'm going to work out a story that Jen and I actually have been working on together for my new show, and then Jen was going to read a, a poem that's in progress, and then Corinne has a poem in progress also, but but I'll, I'll just start. This is, a, this is a story that happened last year where Jen had this extreme pain in her gallbladder, and she went to her doctor, and she pointed to her gallbladder and, I, and said, I have extreme pain episodes here. And the doctor said, I think you've just been having muscle spasms from holding the baby. And she said, no, I don't hold the baby with my gallbladder. And when Jen tells this story, she calls this mansplaining, which is, if you're not familiar with the term, is, is a term that generalizes people by gender. And the idea, of course, that a man is arrogantly patronizing a woman with information she understands better than him. But, but And I'm fine with that term. I just feel like if we're going to generalize by gender... <laughs> I think we should also say that that woman-splaining is when a woman explains something for 10 minutes and then in the final minute says the thing she could have said in the first sentence. But that's only if we're generalizing. <laughs> and so, uh, so we went to another doctor, uh, Dr. McMahon, uh, who's one of those doctors we had heard about who will prescribe anything. Like, you'll be like, I scraped my knee. And he'll be like, have you tried heroin? So at this point... Uh, we knew she needed a scan, and so so we go to McMahon's office. She goes she goes to McMahon's office, which autocorrects in my phone as McMuffin. And the first thing McMuffin says is, "I recommend you get 
a breast reduction. And she said, sure, but the pain is in my gallbladder, which is some classic mansplaining right there. My wife is like, I think I'm going to die. And the doctor's like, what's going on with your boobs? You're thinking we go bigger, smaller. We can do anything. I mean, this is a hospital. And so uh, McMuffin orders a scan. And so she hops in this MRI machine. And we take the scan to the gastroenterologist. And he says, we need to take out your gallbladder immediately. And so they take it out uh, surgically. And the surgery is a success. But it drives home this point that our bodies are a mystery and the world is a mystery and everything is chaos and everything could fall apart at any moment. But right now, we're lucky. And we get home from the hospital and Jen says, getting my gallbladder taken out was one of the greatest feelings I've ever felt. So from that point on, Jen has gone to a woman doctor. And whenever she has a, a medical problem, she goes in and she woman-splains her symptoms and the doctor woman explains the diagnosis, and it takes about 56 hours, but she's alive. <laughs> and that's really the goal. And I think the moral of the story is that if you have a serious medical problem, you should go to four terrible doctors or one woman. <laughs> and that, that's the end. That's the end of that. that, that. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I mansplain. I mean, I mansplain to <laughs> most men, you know, and I think it's, I mean, men do it to it's each like other. It's like an evening out that it, he's trying to do. I, I think a lot of it is just, uh, man, just that's called man men. On, that's called man on mansplaining. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to be around any of it's that. It's called double mansplaining. <laughs> So the poem Jen is working out uh, started as sort of uh, an anti-social media manifesto. And, and now and now she's not sure where it will land, but I just really love the poem. And so I encourage her to share it. All right, it's called We Typed Our Words. We typed our words into the machine. Happy birthday, bud. Nice hat, dumbass. And our words were broadcast to the arena of everybody. And we were instantly known. We typed our real true feelings into the machine. Life is too short for a publicity, darling. Life is too short for fame. As if words by their amplification could be better understood. We typed our locations into the machine as if no burglars were watching. We typed the correct spellings of our mother's maiden names into the machine, our long dead childhood pets. We typed our dating preferences into the machine as if no enemy would use them to seduce us. Click clack of keys. Now they understand me. Wow. We typed our numbers into the machine, birth dates, phone numbers, lucky numbers, room key numbers, the code to our safe, and the machine tracked the times and dates of our typing. We entered significant calendar dates with information of our whereabouts into the machine. We entered our blood types and the double helixes of our DNA and ancestry, all the while fists up protesting eugenics and a government registry. If we creamed corn, we collected the cobs into the wicker work of the machine. If we rolled noodles, we ladled the broth and grabbed them like slippery worms, one end of the noodle in our mouth, the other in the mouth of the machine. If we crocheted sweaters, we slip-stitched them into the algebraic twill of the machine. If fat games was our business, we fastened the tubes to the canister of the machine, sucked all the prospects and spaghettis of our marketplace into the machine, 
as if no one was trying to own us, and voluntarily reported to work there each morning. We sucked our mornings as eyeballs into the machine. And then it kind of goes on from there. And then the last line, after a couple more pages, the last line is like, I don't know who wrote these words, me or the machine. Mm. Oh, I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Oh, my God, I love that. Um, it, but, it, yeah, sorry. yeah, I love it. it it's um, something that reminded me just for a second of, of a song that, Matt and I worked on together and my great dream was to send him (laughs) like a bunch of nonsense lines that sounded like super cheerful machines were writing them for us (laughs) (laughs) and I just really wanted like this kind of feeling of like that chewed up nonsense um uh, and that kind of hysteria and terror and it didn't totally come through, I admit, in my first draft. But then you kind of took it and played around. I thought with you were it. just mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, anyway, I just, Jen, I think thanks for super cool. I love it. And what's so beautiful about what you just read is is how you can connect these like um, sort of big abstract things like a, a long dead childhood to spaghetti, you know. Or soup with noodles. Mm -hmm. And then in between, you talk about a helix. Especially soup. Well, no. I mean, and and then you you talk about this helix of the DNA and stuff. And it's all about identity and and what what makes us us and and all that. And and, and I think I learned that it's almost impossible to create an accurate image of someone unless you take bits of all these different things. And, you know, if you just try to unpack one aspect of somebody, it's like trying trying to... describe someone by describing their finger, you know? Yeah. And you kind of have to just do a glimpse of their eye, the color of their shoe, and, the, and, and something about the way they walk, yeah. it, it, you know, to, to be able to get any real image. And so, but what you've done is that you, you can connect your whole, you know, sort of the big global things with the small, tiny, personal, t- tiny personal moments. I totally agree. And then, and then one of the things that Jen was saying to me earlier today about this poem is that she's a little bit stalled on it because since she started writing it in March, so much has changed. And actually social media, which she started writing this as like a critical analysis of social media, has actually become one of the one of the stronger tools in the pandemic. Yeah, everything, everything's shifting so f- quickly. I think... I mean, artists and the message and, and, and even the way you speak and even, I mean, I'm just learning, trying to, I'm, I'm learning all the time, but learning just this week, you know, how to, how to talk about racism in America, you know, in a yeah. fresh way, right? And all this kind of stuff. And so I think you, all that stuff is coming through, um, you know, the, these changes are happening while you're in the middle of a project. And I think um, all I've been able to do is just like, uh, let that change be be part of the thing and, yeah. Yeah. and and like allow that turn to happen in the work, yeah. you know, and, and, and I think that's powerful because everyone is going through this massive uh, rethink and, and, and we're all evolving. Some of us are devolving quickly. Yes. I think most of us are evolving quickly in, into new ways of thinking of of how we live our lives, what's important to us, and and how we interact with each other. And so yeah. I think what's, the fact that you're having yeah. this crisis is at 
plot twist that is could be help good, you know, who knows? I don't know. Right. No, I think you're right. I think I need to like let it find its way into it. So this is a, a poem I worked on a really long time ago that then I, I it's, it's like a, it's sort of like if I were knitting a blanket and there was one that I just always put aside and then come back to and knit on when I'm anxious. <laughs> oh. Because I feel like I don't ever know where to go with this one. <laughs> wow. But there's a few things about it that capture, uh, I don't know, it's called Ronald Reagan Dreaming. <laughs> okay. Um, and it has um, it has in it a desire to to sort of get inside and describe a, a, a mind not there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll just read a couple of sections. The um, Ronald Reagan dreaming. One, I dreamed of myself with other people. I had straighter teeth. Two, at points I was less interested because I was not sure the dream was happening to me. Just how close am I meant to stand to someone? There was a sort of barren desert sunset vista, bushes like tufts of hair. The colors were horizontal strips, as in a child's painting, white on blue, on pink, on brown, on red, on yellow-green. I shouldn't say that things were like other things, for they were both things for the course of the dream. You could enter a scene from any side. The plan unbelts and reassembles as you travel through it. The eye stays at a docking distance. Three. When I was very young, I watched a familiar face in a, blank of, in a bank of clouds. In this dream, everything is larger than I expected. A man, a real man, to the sound of birdsong, blesses a quiet public. He and I follow a fading light for miles through a series of flickering pictorials, and when the light moves on, his sleeping kills me. He's gone dim, and this is my actual heartbreaking. So I'm gonna stop there, but that's just a that's intro really to some idea of who's a that, setting. Who, who, uh, who's that about? <laughs> <laughs> you were saying that it's like you've written it as fragments. Had you read it out li- loud before, or never? It sounds. I mean, if it, it sounds very cohesive and very like. It floating from one thing to the next. I love that teeth line in the beginning too. It's so good. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. The teeth line is beautiful. And like also the whole experience of the poem is such a dreamlike quality, which I think is, I'm sure the, I, that I'm, I'm guessing Corinne that's intended. Right. That's why the, the fragments are working so nice. Yeah. That's kind of the fun of it. Yeah. Is that it's an excuse to have something that will sort of always work. I mean, it's right. Jen. It's kind of like exactly what you were saying, where it's like once you're going to bring in the, the chaos, well, then you can go anywhere. So that's kind of I think why I just keep waiting to see why am I still writing a poem about Ronald Reagan after you know why I, you know like there was like a moment where I was reading a biography of him. I think that started it. You've mentioned this poem. I've never heard of the whole thing. I've never heard. That's of, not even. I know. <laughs> I, I, but I, there's a lot of that I've never heard. I've, I've heard bits and pieces of it over the last 15 years. Wow. And, uh, I think what's interesting, though, is, is that you do... I, I like to finish something and move on from it. Yeah. And where you like to... Uh, Certain things. You like to go... You like to keep it yours for, it, for you know... In, I just like having... Being in the middle of things. I, I don't totally, always like I totally the relate feeling to of that. a beginning. Mm-hmm. I relate to that so much. 
yeah, like holding yeah. on to things. Like most of my stuff before this year was just living in my computer for like a decade. You know, like I wasn't like all those little astronaut poems and all the poems in the new one. They weren't really going anywhere. They were just living in my like little my mind and my computer. And there was just something really special about that. I think one of the things that's been really eye opening about being married to a poet. And, and someone who writes uh, under a pseudonym and uh, often and uh, anonymous poetry is, is is it's made me ponder for the first time, like, are there thousands or millions of people like this who are just writing these brilliant things in secret? I think there are. I, th- I, I think there are. I, I think mean, there are, too. I mean, that, that's been my takeaway. Most of my, my, most of my friends have hidden amazing art. My dad has a stack of, he's written on my mom a love letter or a poem every one or two a year for their whole lives. And he's got a stack. Wow. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, Some of them suck. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we like to edit them. Some of mine do too. I I have, I have, I have notes on them going back to the beginning of their marriage. Um, (laughs) <laughs> no, but, but it's just, just, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that until just a few years ago. I also didn't know that my dad has been meditating for 20 years. He only revealed that wow. to me uh, last couple Christmases ago. I'm like, well, why didn't you get me to do that? You know? Um, anyway. But uh, as someone who's like the extrovert in our relationship is like, I, I, I think before I met Jen, I couldn't even grasp that. I couldn't grasp the idea of creating... Uh, something great and not sharing it with people. Well, Corinne's description of it, it, you're sort of been knitting it. I totally relate to that. The sort of joy of like creating the pattern of it or just the, just being able to go to it when you have some time to sort of, you know, actually for the first time ever, I, you know, cut my own hair and we, Una and Mike helped me and it was kind of a terrible haircut. It's pretty short and it looks awful. It's gorgeous. But um, I was like editing it every day the way kind of the knitting <laughs> idea that you have. Like I just start to, cause like I started to treat it like a poem. Like I would just like do like a couple snips a day and like just sort of felt like I had to edit it. I don't know, like it was, and it was compulsive. And I felt like it's very similar to like how I see writing, which is sort of this compulsiveness to like go back to it and see what you can do with it today. But like, I love the same, working on the same piece for a really long time. Yeah. I'm working on a similar mustache right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, the, the thing about, Mike, that you were saying about um, being an extrovert, or, and, and, and it's true, I, I, I am definitely an extrovert, and Corinne is an introvert. And I, I've, I've thought about that, like I was wondered why, because I, I, I am feel, I am incredibly insecure. Um, and I think the insecurity has made me more of an extrovert. Does that make Mm. sense? Because I'm desperately trying to show strength that I don't actually feel internally. And I'm trying to project something that maybe isn't totally there. Um, And, uh, or Or even trying to connect with people in an, in an external way that confirms Mm -hmm. that maybe what you're doing is okay. Kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, I, 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 oh, that's so I welcome, I actually welcome negative feedback because it makes me <laughs> even more, you know, I'm like, oh, really? And then I, and then I go back in and just, 
That's such a superpower, though. Yeah. I think my parents were like, my parents were artsy. And neat. I mean, my mom was a, was a kind of a you know, school teacher. My dad was a lawyer, but they were always making art in the basement, always working on stuff, whether it's the garden or paintings or little things. Sculptures. Sculptures. And they, they never made a big deal about it, but they, everything I made, I think they wanted to be artists, and but they weren't. But they wanted if if they saw their kids going towards art, I think they just wanted us to follow that dream. And so my parents, everything I did, even the shittiest drawings, just the dumbest stuff, they just loved. My mom would hang it up and just talk <laughs> about what what she loved about it. And they kept sending me to art classes. And my parents, being kind of you know unconditionally, uh, maybe overly. Um, supportive of my weird art gave me a delusional confidence that I don't know if I'd be able to do what I do without it. And so it's a, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. It's turned me into an annoying person, but what, for sure. what, what incredibly if, successful. <laughs> what, Matt, what if your, uh, what if your dad's journals are uncovered one day and it's like, uh, <laughs> just like Cheever's journals. Yeah. Well, I was going to say like, it's like in this fake empire. It's like, wait a minute. Stole that from oh, right. dad. We're half awake in a fake empire. This is true. Many of the of the the national lyrics that people have tattooed their bodies or inscribed <laughs> on their wedding rings are Corins. Are Corins. And oh I gosh. even saw somebody that my name it was like a quote it was tattooed on their shoulder, and it was a it was a lyric, and it said Matt Burning underneath. And I was like, "Wow!" I didn't tell them that it was one of Corinne's lines because I didn't want them to make them change their tattoo. What was the line? <laughs> what was the line? It, it, I, it, it, well, one one that everybody seems to, and it's my favorite line. I think it maybe it's my favorite uh, thing that's ever been written. I, that that Corinne in all the world. Well, no, no, of mine or that I've gotten credit for is is uh, all we have to do is be brave and be kind. Aww. And I know that's came from that came from um, sort of a, a a twist a version of something that Barryman said or Robert Lowell. It's no, no, I, I think I was reading. I, I don't remember who the poet was, but it was some. It was like a. It was like an, a collection of advice from such wise people and somebody had somebody's quote was always be kind 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 and we were talking about that as we were breaking up oh really (laughs) it was in one of our breakup conversations yeah or one of our like should we break up before you go on tour conversations yeah we were in that same murky zone you guys probably were wow jen is the same way i mean i always say that she has the best line in my girlfriend's boyfriend, which is, you can't choose who you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think yeah. that has a quadruple entendre with this conversation today. <laughs> <laughs> so every episode we shine a light on a nonprofit or a charity or, or anything, any organization that you guys have given to in the past or you want to support, and we will link to it in the show notes. And uh, is there anything you guys were thinking of? Yeah, uh, well, actually, it was literally two days after Trump won um, that uh, the Nationals manager, my dear friend uh, Brandon Reed, uh, called and said, um, what should we do? And, and we started this uh, thing called Seven Inches for Planned Parenthood, which 
we were thought was maybe that an inappropriate title, but we <laughs> thought it was funny, so we stuck with it. And and yeah, so um, and that's a that's a nonprofit, and it's just a collection of of comedians, doctors, and we have some different um, you know public speakers. We have Margaret Atwood; she re- she reads a couple poems on it. So that's awesome. Yeah, if you want to don't you you can buy the box set or the or the songs individually, or you can just donate. To uh, Planned Parenthood of America, it's where it's at seven inches for plantparenthood.com. Awesome, that's great. That's felt official. Working it out, cause it's not done. Working it out, cause there's no. Wow, that that may be my favorite episode so far. It's my favorite band, my favorite poet, my favorite person. Uh, and a whole new idea, which is this concept of writing as knitting, something that you keep secret and it's private, but you keep going back to. And I feel like I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to listen to this episode again. I want to thank Matt Berninger and Corinne Besser, as well as The National, for letting us use their brilliant songs today, which can be found wherever music is available. Uh, also, their manager, Brandon Reed, who is so helpful. Special thanks to my brilliant wife, J-Hope Stein, I convinced her to join Instagram and post poetry on it. And so she is at J Hope Stein. And also our book is now officially everywhere. Curb sides and website sides and <laughs> audible and all the places. If you like it, write a user review. If you like this podcast, write a user review. Write a lot of user reviews. That is an excellent use of time. Thank you for all the feedback on the book. It has been so wonderful to to hear how people are experiencing it. It's called The New One, Painfully True Stories from a Reluctant Dad with Poems by J-Hope Stein. More on that at thenewone.com. The producers of Working It Out are Peter Salomone and Joseph Berbiglia. Consulting producer Seth Barish. Sound mix by Kate Belinsky. Special thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz. Another special thanks to Jack Antonoff for our theme music. And as always, a very special thanks to our daughter, Una, who created my radio fort. Once again, our thanks to Sam Adams, who is presenting the Restaurant Strong Fund. Join them at samueladams.com. And thanks to everyone who listened whether you're writing or knitting or baking or painting or writing poems or jokes. Thanks for being a part of our journey. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, we're working it out.